is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up, China bounces back into the barley market. Around 80% of our barley goes there now, raising those risk issues into the future. And the federal government has agreed to change the way it taxes farmers on biosecurity. The government has been under pressure from the farm lobbies, but uh, grain farmers still a bit concerned. Let's hear what the minister had to say. We've listened to that feedback, and as a result, today I'm announcing that we're changing the way the biosecurity protection levy is calculated to make it fairer and more transparent. The key feedback from industry on the proposed design included concerns about the equity and fairness of levy rates across different commodities, association and confusion with the existing agricultural levies system, and multiple imposition points for some commodities across the supply chain. Changes to the design of the levy have taken these issues into account. You might have some thoughts about that. The biosecurity levy, also the barley market, 80% of it uh, going back to China. You can always send us a text here at the country hour, 0467 684 is the number to text me here at the country hour. Well, let's go to that uh, China barley issue first up. And uh, since the opening up of that barley market, after those sanctions were reduced by the Chinese, the demand has gone gangbusters in the four months to December 2023. 3.8 million tonnes have been exported to China. That's 78%. In December, around 90% of the barley that Australia exported all went to China. Most of Australia's barley will actually be planted across April and May. So it remains to be seen what will happen in those months as well. And Andrew Whitelaw is an analyst and director of Episode 3.net. He says there is a risk that the relationship could sour like it did in the past. But when China is paying the highest price... Australian growers will sell them barley. Yeah, I wasn't surprised that they fired back. I expected them to be very strong this year. I'm probably surprised at how quickly they've came back into the fold. So, you know, we haven't done any barley from May 2020 until August 2023, when uh, that was the first month that we could economically ship barley to China. So we've only really had four months of data, September through December, of full months, and they have been going gangbusters uh, importing our barley. What sort of level are we seeing? Look, if we if we take the, just those full months, September through to December, we're basically talking about 77% of all the barley we exported in those four months was destined for China. And in December, which December is normally our biggest month for exports. It's the month where we export the biggest volumes of barley every year, on average. 90% of all the barley leaving our shores was going to China. So big licks. Right. And this would be for feed and for malting? So for making beer and for animal feed? Yeah, those volumes. Like obviously, I don't have a breakdown yet of the malt versus the uh, the feed, but big chunks of it is going for malt, but also, also feed as well. And... As we know, anecdotally, some barley that goes at layers feed could end up becoming malted as well. So, but at that volume, it's ninety percent of all of it. So, yeah, it's it's going into a number of avenues. So that's huge, and I so much for this idea that we need to diversify our markets. And there was a risk there of sending to China. That hasn't worked. Look, I think look what we need to do is as a as a government and as an industry 
is open up the doors so that we do have the potential. So getting rid of phytosanitary requirements, making sure that you know there's uh, less barriers to us doing trade with various countries around the world. Like for instance, we did a bit of a little tiny bit of barley into Mexico at one point in recent years, which was new. They may come back, um, but having us open to them increases opportunities. Just like when China closed the door, it closed off a lot of opportunities. So I think it's important to have you know access to markets. The reality is though that these markets and the trade is dictated by price, and it's the same as the farmers listening to this. A radio show. If uh, if one company's got a price of, of barley at three hundred and sixty dollars a ton, and another's got a price at three hundred and seventy dollars a ton, have a think about you know where you'd be selling it to. And I can almost guarantee you'd be selling it to one at three hundred and seventy dollars a ton, and there's nothing wrong with that. But that's just the reality of trade and trade flows, and that's what we're seeing now. Is China is receiving the biggest volume because it's the best place to send it. So China are prepared to pay more than anybody else. And I guess part of it is, too, the proximity. They're relatively close by, so the shipping's are probably cheaper. Well, we, one, of the, one of the winners of the, the barley tariff in recent years was actually France. Yeah. So big chunks of, of barley, feed barley especially, was going into China. Uh, so we actually saw the month or pretty much the day or the week of the tariff being introduced, we saw... Australian barley moving to a heavy discount to French barley. And that stayed at a discount right through until August of 2023. So basically, the entire period of the tariff, we were at a discount. And it returned to a premium as soon as China was open. And, and you're right, you know, obviously, China to Australia and China to France, the shipping time is less and the costs are less. So... We, we're back in the fold. There's a reason why they're buying barley from us before the tariff, and that's the reason why they'll be buying it after the tariff. But there are sort of inherent risks in the, the political system. The political situation could sour, and we might see, you know, uh, and, and they haven't re- removed the tariffs for wine yet, for example, uh, the Chinese. So, you know, things could change. I suppose there's still, there's, there's still some merit in trying to loosen up or look at other markets? Absolutely. Like, like, like I said before, we want to open as many doors as possible, but we can't force people to walk through those doors. We can have, we can have 20 doors open, 20 countries, but if the trader who's buying the barley in, in Australia and exporting it has a better price going to China and, uh, and he's going to give himself a nice little pat on the back and he's going to uh, earn more from it, then that's where it's going to go. And that's just, again, it's just the reality. But we have to be wary that, you know, we have seen tariffs in the past from China and, and we have seen actions from other countries like India in, in recent years. So there's no such thing as a risk-free trade. And I think that's something that we all have to remember. Is this also maybe a sign that China isn't growing as much grain as uh, they're telling the world they are? You know, if they are, you know, always in the market for our barley? Look, Michael, I think we spoke about it before. Um, China has been buying massive volumes of mm. grains the last three or four years. And wheat too, barley and wheat, yep. <clears throat> huge amounts of wheat, huge amounts of barley, huge amounts of corn. It was going from like pre-COVID, if I, if I use that as just a date, pre-COVID we're talking sub-15 million tonnes a year of those three commodities. And now in recent years, you know, 
plus 45, plus 50 million tons. So we're not talking little, little sort of bunny hops. We're talking like real leaps up in terms of the volumes they're buying. So look, I think that's a good thing for us as as yeah, strain growers yep. when we've got a market so close. But we still have to be thinking about you know other countries and keeping the doors open, even if we don't sell anything to them. Andrew Whitelaw is an analyst and director of Episode3.net. You're listening to The Country Hour, 13 minutes past 12. We've got some reaction from uh, Grains Producers Australia on this issue. Andrew Wiedemann says that uh, they're concerned about China's dominance in the market, given those trade sanctions that did shut Australia's out until uh, really recently, August 2023. And also, he says it reduced barley prices by $50 a tonne. He said he doesn't want to see that happen again. We're really at the uh, behest of the market uh, itself, uh, Michael, and, and in regards to that, that's where the best prices are being paid again at the moment, but it's obviously playing back into the same position that we were pre the tariff introduction, and uh, that's the concern, I suppose, that from the industry's point of view, long term, uh, you know, to be back in the same spot again is going to be a real problem for us. So if there is a problem with the trade relationship between Australia and China for some political reasons, you know, we're back in the same back on the same treadmill. We are, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, I probably said this uh, almost a decade ago to the trade, but, you know, I was, I was held down pretty quickly by saying, well, we do, they pay the most money. And, you know, that's a factor of supply and demand. And uh, they are the market that does pay uh, the uh, most money generally speaking, but I think that, uh, you know, I've been a big advocate uh, in trying to develop Grains Australia for the industry to look at developing new markets uh, for a long time, and I do see that as still a course of investment that we're making through the GRDC, Grains Research Development Corporation, investment now as growers to try and develop new markets around the globe and potentially higher value markets, which then those markets can compete on a basis, price basis with China. So what's the price of barley at the moment for a tonne, you know, for uh, malting? Yeah, so look, a malting barley price uh, today is a bit since harvest, but around that sort of three forty, three fifty port uh, basis. Which and the sort of high-quality feed? Yeah, high-quality feed uh, today is around about a three ten. Yeah. So, so, so and, and uh, you know, the Middle East are paying about $10 less than China, so it doesn't go as much to the Middle East. Is that the problem? Yeah, look, it is. I mean, uh, you know, I've got first-hand experience um, through the shipment of wheat that we're doing with uh, Amman, and uh, they've very clearly stated their position around buying feed barley from Australia. They're price sensitive. Uh, they look at other origins, and uh, at the moment, uh, on a US basis, we're about thirty to forty dollars US above what they can buy it for in uh, out of other origins. We saw that reflected in the prices without the Chinese. Uh, we were losing 50 to $60 a tonne off the top of the market every day of the week. So we need to find some more um, malting um, uh, buyers. Maybe Mex- Mexico was talked about um, you know, as well, but that didn't really take off. Yeah, look, I mean, all of those, all those new markets, and that's where I, I feel that Grains Australia, the investment that growers are making through the GODC levy, as I've said, Michael, I feel is going to pay benefits long-term. I mean, we're all in the in this farming industry for the long-term benefit of the industry. That investment should pay off down the track. Uh, it's hard yards. Well, we need to sort of try and find markets closer by. I mean, China, part of the reason they buy from us is because of the freight differential. They can get it cheaper. The, the freight distance between Australia and China is a lot uh, less than between France and China or even Ukraine 
and China. So maybe that's why they're buying, buying more for us. We need to find some more markets in Southeast Asia, maybe. Yeah, look, we do. And, and I know sort of long term with China, there's a high risk associated with China because they're building uh, potentially large infrastructure railway connection uh, out through Mongolia uh, into Russia and other countries. So, well, they're trying to ramp up their own grain production, but that doesn't seem to be working. No, look, it didn't. I mean, that was the clear message back from the Chinese that they wanted to improve through the tariff for barley production in China. That didn't happen. Uh, and uh, they're still averse to growing barley when they've got better pricing through um, corn and uh, wheat and soybeans. So, you know, they're their three sort of prime areas that they work to, and barley is a very poor second cousin in China. Andrew Edelman from Grain Producers Australia about uh, China's uh, regaining that dominance of uh, our uh, barley exports. It's coming up to 18 minutes past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. Services Australia dealing with a backlog of more than one million unprocessed claims for health and social security. What needs to be done? Parts of Victoria on alert with high temperatures and catastrophic fire danger in some areas of the state. And veteran firefighters adapting as the nature of some bushfires evolves. How will firefighting techniques change to keep up? Those stories and much more coming up on The World Today. And on the country, the federal government has agreed to change the way it taxes farmers to pay for biosecurity. The government's been under pressure from the farm lobby about plans to tax farmers to pay for services like mail and passenger detection services. The biosecurity levy is yet to be legislated, but Agriculture Minister Murray Watts says it will be a fairer way and now set according to the industry's average share of farm, forestry and fisheries production over a rolling three-year period. Here he is announcing the changes at Parliament House this morning. In the last budget, the Albanese government introduced Australia's first ever sustainable biosecurity funding model that delivers $1 billion over the next four years in new funding for our essential biosecurity services. This includes government funding of $350 million and $363 million from importers, an increase of hundreds of millions of dollars under the Albanese government as well as a modest and direct contribution from those who directly benefit from Australia's strong biosecurity system. The biosecurity protection levy will contribute just 6% of the total funding model, or about $50 million a year. The department has undertaken extensive consultation over the back half of last year, including stakeholder meetings, a survey of industry, as well as inviting submissions to be made. We've listened to that feedback, and as a result, Today I'm announcing that we're changing the way the biosecurity protection levy is calculated to make it fairer and more transparent. The key feedback from industry on the proposed design included concerns about the equity and fairness of levy rates across different commodities, association and confusion with the existing agricultural levies system, and multiple imposition points for some commodities across the supply chain. Changes to the design of the levy have taken these issues into account. Rates will be set using a common and equitable basis for all industry sector products and goods and will not be set by reference to 2020-21 agricultural levy rates as was originally proposed. In addition, imposition of the levy will be tailored to individual products and goods to reduce multiple imposition points across a product's supply chain. 
the policy intent, key policy parameters and contribution to Commonwealth funding remain the same as announced in the budget package. That's Agriculture Minister Murray Watt in Canberra this morning. Now, under the new levy, taxpayers will contribute about 44% of total biosecurity funding. Importers will contribute about 48%. Farmers will contribute 6%. And Australia Post will contribute about 2%. Grain Producers Australia is not happy with the new model, saying those producers with existing biosecurity levies in place are being unfairly penalised and paying more, whilst the free riders will continue to get a free ride. GPA's Andrew Wiedemann says whilst the government has listened in making changes to update the policy, it's still unclear whether grain producers will pay any more or any less than the proposed 10% that had been talked about before. He says clarity is needed on what the actual rates will be for individual commodities like grains, and he's concerned about this new one-size-fits-all policy and its undermining of trust and confidence in the existing levy system. No, look, it's all about where the money goes and the impact that it's going to have, Michael. And, you know, we've been talking um, with GODC and Plant Health Australia as the signature to the plant health deed around this. And, and it's important for us to make sure that the impact and the spend is, is uh, audited and people know we're getting a return on that. But uh, to just put a carte blanche 10% across the levy that's already collected and uh, put in a consolidated revenue wasn't going to be an effective use of taxpayers, essentially another tax on farmers. Uh, so, yeah, that's why there's uh, certainly a lot of uh, pushback from my sector and other sectors right across the agricultural sphere of Australian agriculture to try and reduce that uh, impact um, when we've already got um, you know, a, security, a secure system. We just need to tweak it. Yeah, I mean, you're quoting a 10% figure. The, the government's quoting a 6% figure. And they're saying it's a reduction from what originally was there because they've heard what farmers are saying, that farmers were not happy with paying a levy. But they say that farmers, that a lot of farmers are happy to pay something to secure our borders to reduce biosecurity threats because they're benefiting from that. Yeah, look, I think from the grains industry's perspective, uh, you know, we're already building large reserves at the Grains Research Development Corporation, and this is a discussion that we're having with them. So already paying various levies? We're already paying enough levy. It's about how we distribute it from the grains. I'm talking specifically about grains here. It should be a better spend of the GRDC reserves that we have currently used in biosecurity areas that need to be done. Every grower in Australia realises the impact that biosecurity concerns has on our businesses. So, yeah, it's about getting that mix right and getting the balance right. Uh, and, uh, yeah, the tax that they've been talking about, 10%, 6%, whatever, it's really just going into consolidated revenue and there's no plan for how that's going to have an impact uh, at any of the levels that the government's talking about. So the money just going direct to DAF, not to biosecurity. That's what you're, that's, that's yeah. what you're worried about. Well, look, I am, and I, and I think if you look at the history recently of DAF's performance at a financial pace, uh, you know, the government bailed them out of a $120 million black hole only two years ago. So I think we've got to be really concerned about, uh, you know, how DAF operates, be giving them money carte blanche without some level of checks and balances. Andrew Wiedemann from Grain Producers Australia. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. 
Well, ancient, ancients thought that it was unlikely records would fall at this week's English classic yearling sale, but a debut vendor from the Upper Hunter has made it happen. Mick Malone and Pauline Alex ventured out late last year to launch their own thoroughbred stud north, buying the property Canangra from the Moses family just outside of Scone. Now, Mick is no stranger to the sale, the yearling sale, but it's the first time he and partner Pauline had offered yearlings as north, and to set a new sale record for the English classic was not something they had expected their too darn hot and hell it's hot filly selling for six hundred thousand dollars to ylp racing as mick tells amelia bernasconi he knew that she was a special horse oh look it's like all it's all these sorts of things you you sort of you're nervous but you know that she's got had great we've had great feedback on her she's such a quality silly uh you're you know you're a sister in her time it's she, it had that really fairy tale feel to her, but until you get in sailing, you never really, really know. It's just one of those. It's one of those things. Yeah, she had a ton of interest, and she had lots of X-ray hits and all the good stuff. But I've I've been there many times when you feel confident and it doesn't work out. So no, it was just like that. Mm, yeah, you can't count your chickens, I suppose, can you? But a mix of too darn hot and hell, it's hot. I, I suppose that that breeding is where a lot of that early interest would have come from. Yeah, and leading in, because um, Yulong bought the sister last year, I think they paid 280000 and I, I remember that filly, she was really nice, but she this filly had a lot more quality, or a bit bigger and stronger, and, and that filly trialled the week leading into the classic sale, and won the trial by six or seven lengths with Chris Lees. That also just, I think sometimes these older mares, the market gets a little nervous about, have they, have we seen their best? You know, in her time was early in the mare's career, and but when they can pop out and show that they've still got it and a two-year-old child up like it did, she looks very promising. I think it just adds to the fact that the mare, even in a later later age, is starting can still produce a really nice horse. And and then too damn hot, he's been so well received, he's going enormous. Um, and then just I, I've never, I want to say I've never had a filly with an attitude like her. I can certainly say it now. If I said it before, people would say it was just a selling pitch, but we're done there now. But she just handled everything. From from the second she walked into the barn for yearling prep to the end, she just was unbelievably con- constitution. She had just a racehorse brain. I know no one goes in wanting to, well, expecting to break a record, but when you saw that bidding continue and just what was – tell me what you can tell me that was running through your head as the bids kept coming in to eventually sell that filly for 600000 Telling my partner, Pauline, who was standing next to me, just relax. <laughs> Trying to keep calm. Yeah, she was pretty excited. Like it's, it just meant a lot. It means a lot for all different reasons. But with with that filly, Fred Moses, um, who and Mary, who owned Canangra, the the farm we just purchased, they had a, they owned a, a big whack of that filly along with Peter Brown and Bob Charlie, and it just he's been so helpful, so so supportive of us to get a result for him was just huge. It really, really meant a lot like that. And then, like you say, you. You're thinking, God, it'd be great if she made 400. And then, oh, it could be great if she made 500. And then she just keeps rolling. It's just, it's terrific. And a silly to make 600,000 at the English Classic. And it was very, very cool. Very, very cool. Owner and manager of North Bloodstock, Mick Malone, speaking there with Amelia Bernasconi about his too darn hot, hell it's hot filly, which set a new record for the highest price filly sold at the English Classic yearling sale. 28 past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour. On ABC Radio, New South Wales. 
Well, a greyhound trainer from Leeville, south of Casino, has been banned from the industry for life and fined more than $3,000 for bludgeoning horses to death and failing to adhere to industry reporting standards. The Greyhound Welfare and Integrity Commission exhumed the remains of dogs, including one that had been buried under a slab of concrete on a property belonging to trainer Trevor Rice. In evidence, Mr Rice admitted to not meeting the reporting standards but denied killing the dogs. However, the Commission found his testimony inconsistent. Donna Harper spoke with Animal Liberation's Lisa Ryan about the case. Animal Liberation, and I'm sure all dog lovers across New South Wales are appalled at this case. These aren't trifling charges. These are matters that should shock and horrify all New South Wales participants. The fine is trivial in, com- in comparison to the suffering and the gruesome end of life for greyhounds that were probably in kennels most of their life. Um, we've been tracking GWIC investigations for 14 months now, and there's not a lot that surprises us, but uh, when I came across this finding over the weekend... I was horrified uh, and I was deeply distressed because not only does it relate to um, the killing, the deliberate killing of four greyhounds that were probably no longer viable or were injured or whatever the reasons were, but there was 18 separate transactions in this investigation involving a whole lot of other dogs as well. So another three dogs that died in this greyhound racing participants' care, other dogs that have been offloaded to third parties, but we don't know where, we don't know if those dogs are actually alive or dead, and other greyhounds that have been disposed of in unknown properties. So immediately I read the full investigation published by GWIC. Um, I contacted the CEO at the Greyhound Welfare and Integrity Commission asking questions about where are all the other dogs. And while there would have been nothing short of acceptable other than a lifetime ban, the fine is not adequate. And we are, we have asked GWIC to refer this matter to RSPCA. If it was any other individual or any other breed of animal, it would be appearing before the courts so that there was some public transparency. But because we have this independent investigator that is publicly funded, what GWIC does is the end of the case. This this industry is not getting better in spite of all the claims. You only have to go back through GWIC cases to find not only The majority of cases are still involving banned substances being administered to dogs and then being picked through forensic testing. In spite of all the claims, this industry is never going to reform. We really need a minister in the the Christmas Labor government to be saying enough's enough and shut it down. Animal Liberation's Lisa Ryan speaking there with Donna Harper. The ABC contacted uh, greyhound breeder Trevor Rice who declined to comment but he confirmed he will be appealing the decision of the Greyhound Welfare and Integrity Commission. 
It's 28 minutes to one. Shortly we'll have some weather details, some storms on the way, I gather. But uh, um, let's find out what's happening in the news. Adam Storey's here. Good afternoon. It looks like some contaminated mulches on oh, the yes. Little Park near you. Yes, uh, broad at uh, Victoria Park, just around the corner more, from here. Three more in the Sydney CBD. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, mm. uh, including, yes, uh, Victoria Park at Broadway. Belmore Park at Central Station. and uh, Which is pre- not far away from here either. Which is not, so yep. we're sort of in a pincer movement here, <laughs> and the third one's in Surrey Hills, which right. is also just up the road. So okay. We're surrounded by them <laughs> here in Ultimo. Luckily, we're, we're all just pure concrete around, uh, <laughs> around here. Yes, it's um, lovely. Yeah, it's lovely, especially this time of year. Mm. Uh, so this uh, takes it to a more than a dozen sites now, including uh, Liverpool West Public Hospital and Campbelltown Hospital. Uh, and the uh, school uh, that was discovered yesterday. Now, the company Greenlife, they're saying all the mulch delivered to the various building sites has been asbestos-free, so their line is that the contamination has happened on-site, possibly. Really? Which... Seems... Mm. A bit strange. Interesting. <laughs> um, correspondence has revealed that Australia rebuffed the United States' request for more military support in the Red Sea two years ago. Uh, just before the last federal election, um, the federal government has, fa- has been under criticism from the opposition for uh, not agreeing to a US request uh, to send uh, warships to the region, uh, saying it uh, has more commitments in the Indo-Pacific. But apparently uh, the Morrison government did uh, reject a similar cr- request uh, back then. Meanwhile, the US president has appealed for more than one million Palestinians sheltering in southern Gaza to be protected, saying they are exposed and vulnerable. This is the head of the planned ground invasion by Israel in Rafah, in the uh, southern city. Israel says it will go ahead with the offensive and says that an evacuation plan is being prepared. Uh, Mr Biden says the US is... um, very concerned about uh, the fate of the more than one million people who are in that area. Now, Israel's... How are they going to evacuate a million people? Yeah, and Netanyahu was saying there are areas further south that they can go to, but uh, how much further south do... Aren't all the buildings gone? That's Pretty much. <laughs> as <Yeah>. well? <laughs> We'll move on. The federal government is uh, going to criminalise doxing, a practice involving publishing a person's private and personal details online. This came after hundreds of Jewish Australian writers and academics involved in a WhatsApp group chat were um, published online. Uh, so the government says it's going to move uh, move quickly to make it a criminal offence under changes to privacy laws. And the Prime Minister has acknowledged more work needs to be done to close the gap. He's marking the 16th anniversary of the National Apology of the Stolen Generations today. He's currently up in Parliament. There's been a large gathering at Parliament House. Nearly 400 people, including survivors of the Stolen Generations, have attended the event. Mm. And there'll be more news at one o'clock. <sighs> Didn't get enough then? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, you'll have some, I'm sure you'll have some updates. Yeah, there'll be a, bit, some, a few yeah. bits and pieces. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you didn't mention the Super Bowl as well. We talked about it yesterday. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, that's right. Yeah. yeah. But tell you what, it was a good game. I, actually, yeah. I was surprised. Yeah, yeah. over time. Because <laughs> I was yeah. going on about how boring it was yeah, yesterday. And I saw the ending of it. I thought, actually, no, <laughs> it was actually a pretty the, good game. The, they swapped the lead, you know, yeah. numerous times. I know. And, yeah. and they had to get close enough to, to mm. boot the goals, to get it to even it up, and then score the touchdown at the end. I mean, the CIA did very well to bring that to one. What, to sort it out, yeah, didn't they? The yeah, came out, came to make sure the that the, mm. that um, Biden's team got up. That's right. Mm. Yeah. <laughs>
That's See? what we were talking about yesterday. See? See? <laughs> <laughs> we always knew it was going to happen. That's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> it's tongue-in-cheek, listeners. We're I'll just having what, a bit of a joke. Her, uh, her fellow, what's his name? Who's the football player? He's uh, Taylor Swift's. Um, Travis Kelsey. Yeah. Mm. He's huge. He is ma- I know. He's massive. He is Herman Munster. He played quite well. Yeah. And he pushed through at that a vital mm. stage to... to um, to run about 10 yards, and he had about three people hanging on to him yeah. at the stage. Same oh, time. Mate, you, <laughs> you don't want him coming out. Yeah, you? that's right. Yeah. Exactly. No, exactly right. Yeah, no. And uh, the quarterback was good yeah. too. Mahomes was good yeah. as well. Yeah. So, yeah. That so run through the, the middle, yeah. that, at, when there was no one, they were all covering all the other players, yeah. and the quarterback, Mahomes, just went straight Zoom. through. Yeah. <laughs> He's being touted as the, yeah. the big thing. Yeah, the, yeah. the goat. Yeah, the goat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we go again. Uh, well, so that's it. Wasn't for, that long uh, ago? NFL, it was Tom Brady. Now sport. it's baseball starts <laughs> up again. <laughs> that's baseball. Baseball starts again. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks for that. You'll right. be uh, back at one o'clock with the news. You're listening to the Country Hour. It's uh, twenty-three minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Let's find out what's happening with the weather details. You on Park at the Bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Mike. So we had some hot weather. Is it still hot in some parts of the state now, or is it that change moving through? Uh, it's still hot because the late, uh, the change will be fairly late uh, and it will be entering the far southwest perhaps sometime later this afternoon and crossing much, uh, much of the south and west maybe during the overnight period. Uh, so with that, we expect fairly hot temperatures. Um, still, uh, Well, it is already happening and the temp- temperatures to reach about high 30s to low 40s across the Riverina and the low western and in many parts of the west. So places like Broken Hill and Danilukun and Hay may see temperatures reaching close to 40 degrees today. And also there is a high fire dangers as well ahead of these changes because of hot temperatures, especially about the southwestern fire district as well as all three uh, fire districts in the, in the Riverina area. So this is something to watch as well. And also... Uh, we did uh, the uh, heat in the surface level combining with the moisture, uh, remnant moisture from the past weather. Uh, that will bring uh, thunderstorms across the broad areas in the state, all in all but the northeast. And the storms will be more frequent in the south, and there is a risk of seeing severe thunderstorms in the states far southern inland today, uh, with a uh, risk of damaging winds uh, exceeding 90 k per hour. And then uh, looks like uh, the, these storms will be active overnight as well while shifting uh, a bit further uh, north and east. So the focus of the uh, storm activities will be shifting to the state's central, northern and eastern part um, during, uh, for tomorrow uh, as uh, the trough moves a bit further east and moves along the southern two-thirds of the coast as a southerly buster. And tomorrow's, and with that, uh, ahead of these changes, there will be some risk of seeing severe thunderstorms in the east as well for tomorrow. So, in, in summary, the main risk area for storm today is uh, the southern parts of the states, and while tomorrow it will be shifting to the east. So, that, those storms haven't started in the southern part of the state just yet. I thought they had. Uh, some storms have already started about the central tables and the riverina, and right. we expected the storms to be more active during the afternoon and the evening. And also, you know, some thunderstorms in the far south may, may be possibly becoming severe during the course of the day. Okay, so we might see some severe 
uh, thunderstorms. We might see quite a lot of rain, maybe 50 millimetres or, or maybe not that much. And, and, and uh, again, quite isolated? Uh, probably not that much yeah. because of uh, the faster movement of the storms, but maybe localised 20 to 30 is quite possible with the, the storms. And uh, some locations, um, because of a short burst of uh, rainfall, you know, there is some minor risk of flash flooding too for storms in uh, for today and into tomorrow, and especially in the east where we may see a bit more rainfall, but it will be isolated, heavy, heavier totals rather than widespread, you know, uh, heavy falls because of the localised nature of the storms. Okay, and uh, looking further ahead, what's going to happen sort of in the next few days? Yes, and then uh, after the changes, we, we will be seeing the temperature relief, particularly in the east behind the southerly changes. So by Thursday, we expected the temperatures to drop down to maybe low to mid-20s over broad areas in the uh, southeast and the central east, uh, while um, over the inland part, the remnant of the southerly changes will be forming into a, uh, will be transitioning into an inland trough. That means uh, the moisture will be still or, or hanging over the eastern half of the states. That means, you know, showery uh, uh, conditions with a storm or two will be still remaining across the east through the week. And because this moisture is not going away in the next seven days. Okay, Juan, thanks for that. My pleasure. It's coming up to 19 minutes to one here on the Country Hour. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Shortly we'll be looking at uh, Varroa Mite. There's a management plan, a national management plan that's been agreed to. We'll get the details of that and uh, also a new CEO for the National Irrigators Council, but it's a name that you're probably familiar with uh, here on the Country Hour if you're a regular listener. We'll hear more about uh, that shortly. But before we do that, uh, Platypus, the Platypus Research Centre, has been opened at the Dubbo Taronga Western Plains Zoo. And our reporter, Ondine Slacksmith, has been out there at the zoo this morning and joins us now. Rush back into the studio. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. So what did you see, this new research centre? It's a, it's a big deal and uh, will assist uh, in, in uh, the health of the platypus or the uh, platypi throughout New South Wales, I gather. Yes, certainly. So in terms of what I saw, I saw this research centre that I guess along with research is focusing on rescue and as well as rehabilitation for platypus. So to do this, they've sort of constructed this facility that has this uh, purpose-built platypus habitat, which is currently actually housing Mackenzie. So he's a 23-year-old platypus who is actually... 23? Yeah, 23, actually older than me, Um, (laughs) 23-year-old platypus, and he was bred in captivity in Sydney, and he's now here in Dubbo, which is uh, very, very exciting, and so... Yeah, in this facility, along with Mackenzie, the centre can now house up to 65 platypus uh, during severe environmental events such as drought, bushfire and and flood. So I guess in a nutshell, uh, the $12.1 million facility, it's combining rescue and rehab facilities along with a research centre, which is now going to allow scientists to study uh, platypus behaviour before then putting them in a pre-release area, before eventually then putting them... um, back in the wild, which is all really beneficial to, I guess, then uh, further sustain platypus populations so for, the, just, for the future. Just how threatened are the, are the platypus, is the platypus in Australia? 
Well, I learned that their population is actually, it's unfortunately steadily declining. So it's said that it can be attributed to things like uh, bushfire, drought and flood, and which are all increasing uh, in frequency. And this is because the platypus are believed to be the silent victim of climate change. And that's because of their semi-aquatic and uh, semi-terrestrial lifestyle. So uh, all of these environmental events, they're uh, unfortunately impacting on the platypus uh, population. Now, you spoke to a wildlife conservation officer who obviously will be pleased to have a new research centre there. Uh, what did you say about the facility and what sort, of, you know, what sort of a refuge it would be for those 65 animals? Yeah, so I spoke to the conservation officer, Phoebe Ma, and uh, one thing that stood out to me from what she said was that the number of platypus that the facility can house, and so 65, as you just said then, is significant because that's enough platypus to repopulate uh, if the species, if they were to be uh, catastrophically wiped out by one of those environmental events that I just mentioned earlier, so things like, you know, bushfire, drought and, and flood. So that really stood out to me, but, you know, as Phoebe Ma also said, uh, hopefully they will never have to use those facilities and house those uh, additional 65 platypus. So at the moment, it's just Mackenzie, 23-year-old Mackenzie, and he's just he's got the place to himself. <laughs> well, good on him. But so 65, and that is significant because so they can rebreed from there, and they'll have enough they'll have enough of a gene pool there uh, to ensure the survival of the species. By the sound of things. Yeah, so they'll repopulate from there and then put them, I guess, into that pre-release area and then, yeah, back in, back into the wild. Uh, Undine, thanks for that. Appreciate your time on the program today. Thank you. Undine Slacksmith, our reporter based in Dubbo. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's 14 minutes to one. Well, let's look at Varroa Mite now. And the National Management Group for Varroa Destructor has endorsed a transition to management plan, which will see the shareable costs of the response revised from a limit of $136 million to a limit of $100 million. The revised response plan, developed by the Consultative Committee on Emergency Plant Pests, comes nearly five months after Australia gave up on its efforts to eradicate the bee parasite. The plan includes the deployment of more than 30 Varroa development officers across the country to prevent the spread of varroa mite into other states. Danny Laferve is the CEO of the Australian Honeybee Industry Council and he told Kim Honan that he welcomes the plan. Yeah, 26 affected parties at the National Management Group, the NMG, agreed uh, on Friday afternoon with a couple of outstanding votes to come in over the weekend, which have all now been received. So we have a unanimous agreement finally. And so what does this transition to management um, plan entail? Because this is, a, you know, a revised plan that, you know, industry has been waiting on since, what, the 19th of September? Yeah, it's been a long time in the making. It's been quite a, a big negotiation. Um, it's got a lot of parties involved with a lot of needs and wants and, and a lot of people uh, wanting to spend as little as possible now that we're unable to eradicate as well. So it's been a lot of negotiation over the last four months to try and get it to the point where it is now. And it's still not a perfect plan, um, but we're able to get agreement, which is great. Do, do you know how much the eradication efforts actually cost to get to this point? Yeah, we won't know until we have the final costs come in. DPI. Okay, so what does this uh, new response plan entail? So the response plans are really focused on education and extension, really getting those opportunities out to beekeepers right across the country um, to make sure that they're comfortable with the management of Varroa and understand the pest, not only uh, in the areas where the pest is already 
uh, established through New South Wales, but across every jurisdiction. We want to make sure that the beekeepers are comfortable in being able to do the surveillance to find it, uh, but once found it, comfortable in what management options they need to deploy um, and how can they monitor and keep continual vigil looking out for those pests. And what's the, the time frame for this plan? Is it for 12 months or 24 uh, so we're, we we worked really hard at Zarbic to lobby uh, all the affected parties um, to try and get an extension. So uh, for the first time, a transition to management plan is is being granted to go longer than the the um, stipulated 12 months, uh, and we've been able to push it out to 24 months. But the activities themselves will be 12 months activities, but they're not bound by that time frame. So we can make sure that our beekeepers uh, will have access to these resources and training and um, extension offices right through the whole season. What are some examples of some of those activities that uh, beekeepers would be able to access during this time period? So the Tokel College uh, through the DPI are establishing uh, workshops, face-to-face workshops, a full day, uh, which will take beekeepers right through the whole process of Rawa, including the biology, the treatment options, how to look for its surveillance monitoring. Now, that will be rolled out over 100 of those right across the country in every jurisdiction, um, which will give beekeepers the ability to attend face-to-face meetings. But in addition to that, it will be um, online content, fact sheets, videos, a whole raft of educational material that will be available for beekeepers so that they can access it and learn the best way that they want to learn as well. Um, To support that education uh, uh, campaign, there'll be extension officers. So extension officers, or they're being called uh, VDOs, Rural Development Officers, uh, will be in every jurisdiction uh, across Australia to help beekeepers. um, If they're not quite picking it up through the education components that are available to work one-on-one with those beekeepers to develop their management plans, understand the pest, look at what might best suit them in terms of treatment in their areas, and particularly in those states where we don't have ROA, um, help support those beekeepers, set up some industry surveillance programs where we can have a network of sentinel hives looking for that early detection so that our, best, our beekeepers can be best prepared um, for when it gets to their, to their areas. Danny Referve is the CEO of the Australian Honeybee Industry Council. Well, to irrigation now, the National Irrigators Council has a new CEO and she hails from the Moree Plain. Zara Lawine had her first day on the job yesterday after serving as the Executive Officer of the Guida Valley Irrigators Association since 2011. She spoke more with Christy Reading about the new role and what she hopes to achieve. Uh, I want to get back closer and engage uh, with, with members, so I think that's you know, benefit of living in amongst um, one of the communities that is a member. That that's a key area. But also, we've the government's got a pretty um, large reform agenda for this year. We're looking at um, updating the national blueprint for water frameworks and management, um, and so that'll be a key focus for us. Rather than representing just those locally in the Gwydah now, I've got members from South Australia right through to Queensland and into Northern Territory. Zara, what about the challenges? Of course, we know it's been you know a challenging time the last few years, decades even, when it comes to the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Uh, we're talking about uh, buybacks as well. What do you see being some of the biggest challenges? I think finalising the Basin Plan, mm. if we... If we can do it, it's definitely a position of 
of National Irrigation Council has been a position of ours locally as, at Guida um, to to have that policy reform done. It's now been extended by a few years with that legislation um, coming through at the end of last year. But that has opened the door for more buybacks. So the other key focus for um, National Irrigators Council will be how we mitigate some of those impacts and ensure that um, at-risk communities to buybacks and to those structural changes that might occur if water is purchased. It's all voluntary, uh, and so people are open to sell to whoever, including the Commonwealth, whenever they announce. Um, but we know that has flow-through impacts, and so at my job will be to to raise that issue with government and ensure that their structural adjustment packages hit the ground where it's needed and are genuine. The new CEO of the National Irrigators Council, Zara Lewin, speaking to Christy Reading. To markets, first up, Wodonga cattle. Good afternoon. Despite a notably small yarding of 1,900 cattle, the market encountered challenges across various categories, particularly affecting export cattle. Cow prices experienced a decline of 35 cents, with heavy cows fetching 232 to 254, while leaner grades sold at 170 to 230. Heavy steers and bullocks were 20 cents cheaper, but buyers approached cautiously, unwilling to pay above 300 cents. Grown steers and bullocks sold within a range of 254 to 298. Heifers remained in high demand and held firm, fetching 268 to 299. However, feeder steers did experience a slight decline of 10 to 20 cents due to fewer feedlot orders in the market. The bulk selling at 295 to 344, while trade cattle sold from 255 to 380 cents, with European heifers being the highlight of the auction. I'm Leanne Ducks for MLA. To Forbes Sheep and Lambs. Good afternoon. Numbers lifted this sale with agents yarding 31,250 head. There was 20,800 lambs penned and quality continues to be mixed and similar to the previous sales. There were some good lines of trade and heavyweight lambs on offer along with the planer and secondary types. The usual buyers are present competing in a market that was cheaper, particularly on the secondary lines. Trade weight lambs fell 15 to $20 a head with the 20 to 24 kilo lambs selling for 128 to $188 a head. Heavy lambs were also back 10 to 15, with prices ranging from 172 to 203. Extra heavyweight lambs ranged in price from 178 to $222 a head. Carcass prices averaging from 650 to 700 cents a kilo. The best heavy hog reached $120 a head. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. To Carcor cattle now. Numbers fell slightly for a yarding of 2,800 cattle. Quality was mixed with growing cattle well supplied as well as good numbers for feeders. All the regular buyers were present and operating in a cheaper market. Young cattle to the trade were 8 cents cheaper and more in places. Beeler steers and heifers sold from 200 to 251. Yearling steers to process 258 to 333. And yearling heifers to process 200 to 315. Feeder steers were 20 to 25 cents cheaper, selling between 270 and 379. While feeder heifers were, t- were considerably cheaper, 240 to 335. Young cattle to the restocks were $0.15 cents cheaper. Steers sold from 296 to 385 and heifers 260 to 330. Prime grown steers and heifers were 20 to 25 cents cheaper. Heavy steers sold from 220 to 285 and heifers 230 to 285. Cows were up to 30 cents cheaper. Two and three scores sold from 160 to 227 and prime heavyweight cows 225 to 245. 
Heavy wools sold to 240. This has been Angus Williams for MLA at CTLX. To Canada Cattle. Good afternoon. Another large offering with 3,400 penned. Yearlings plentiful and carrying plenty of weight. Quality and condition was fair to good throughout. All processes attended, not as many feedlot orders. With the big numbers in the system, the market couldn't sustain last week's levels. Odd exceptions, mostly in the lighter weight restocker cattle, where steer weaners reached 422 cents a kilo. The best of the medium weight yielding steers remained firm. Cheaper the balance, around 10 cents, 306 to 385 cents. The heavy feeders fell by a similar margin, 300 to 386 cents, over 480 kilos, a greater fall, reaching 363 cents a kilo. Less competition on the medium weight heavy yearlings, 275 to 334, losing all of last week's improvement. Heavy weights as much as 20 cents cheaper, 285 to 330. Heavy ground steers to process much cheaper. Some of that was age related, 284 to 310. Cows were significantly cheaper, with heavy thrown four scores, 210 to 254 cents a kilo. James Armitage for MLA in Gunnada. To Inverell cattle. Medium and heavy feeder steers in Inverell resulted in strong trends, and light background steers saw considerable rises. Heifers sold at cheaper trends. Regular buyers attended to 1,093 mixed quality cattle. Weaner steers significantly dearer, 392 to 420. Heifers cheaper to 368. Light background steers considerably dearer, 344 to 390. Medium feeders, 3 cents dearer, 290 to 380. Heavy feeders, 22 cents better, 310 to 360. Light restocker heifers back 20 cents. 286 to 318, a lack of quality set medium heifers, 40 cents cheaper, 276 to 282, heavy heifers, 20 cents cheaper, making to 306, ground heifers to process back 37, making to 294, cows were cheaper with heavy cows back 12 cents, 244 to 259, Stephen Adams, MLA at Inverell. And to Scone Cattle. Good afternoon. Numbers were marginally backed by 144 head of Scone Agents Yard at 1136 primarily good quality cattle. Weaners and yearlings presented in fine federal being the bulk. A few heavy feeder steers and around 150 cows penned. At the time of this report, the sale is only halfway through. All the regular buyers in attendance market trend cheaper, following suit with most other centres. Buyers starting prices low, auctioneers job hard and slow. Restocker steer weaners back 18 cents, 315 to 394, over 330 kilos to the butchers making to 310. Restocker heifer weaners 200 to 320, easier by 15 to 50 cents. Medium weight yielding steers to domestic feeders, big fluctuations dependent on breed, 270 to 364, over 400 kilos holding firm, 300 to 348. Light two score cows 20 cents cheaper, 120 to 253. Heavy prime cows similar fate, 244 to 265. Angus Barlow for MLA at Scone. And that's the market information for today. And on the text line, Don from Dubbo says it here. It sounds like the federal government is listening to farmer representatives regarding the biosecurity funding. So he says that's good news. And on the weather, Steve the Posty has uh, let us know that uh, at Toowoomba, west of Eden, it's currently 39 degrees. So a bit of weather detail there from Steve the Posty. You're listening to the Country Hour. We're heading up to news time.